Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 44, verse 8 through 26. In God we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it, since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord! Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. This is the word of the Lord. A lot of times when I step up to preach, I'll say something like, this is one of my favorite psalms, or this is one of my favorite portions of the book of Isaiah or Ephesians. I am not going to say that this morning. Uh, Bob, I was honestly tempted to call in sick this morning. <laughs> I picked this psalm, and about midway through the week, I was like, why? Why did I pick this psalm? This is a heavy, depressing, I would say even dark psalm. It's one that forces us to ask some of the most difficult questions of our theology. It's a challenging psalm. The image that kept coming to mind this week as I read this psalm and pondered it uh, was the image of of my son laying in a hospital bed. Uh, He was severely dehydrated. It was no crisis, but he was severely dehydrated and needed an IV. And I think he was about 18 months. And because he was so dehydrated, they were having a difficult time getting the needle into the vein and they were poking and poking and poking and he just kept looking at me like, why? Why are you allowing them to do this to me? That's the feel I get from this psalm. It's heavy. But it's inspired. It's from God. It's useful to the church. And it prepares us, the church, for those times when we're the kid. Looking up to our Heavenly Father, saying, why? Why are you allowing us, your people, to suffer like this? This series has felt long. Four-week series on laments. 
from the book of Psalms. And we're ending with a doozy. But there are three aspects of this psalm that I think make it stand out. It's different than the other psalms of lament that we've looked at so far. Uh, This psalm, first, is far more corporate than any of the other psalms that we've looked at. Uh, There is an inescapable corporateness to this psalm. Uh, There's a, a corporate remembering, corporate expressions of faith, and lament, and this corporate plea for God to do something, to do something about the suffering of his people. The beginning of the psalm, well, the beginning of the psalm that we didn't read looks back and it sounds like a very happy, triumphant psalm. The psalmist is is looking back at past victories about how God had delivered the people and brought them into the land, driving out the nations before them, establishing them in this promised land that was flowing with milk and honey. There's this corporate remembering of how God had acted on behalf of his people. That's verses 1 1 through 3. The psalmist says, we've heard of what you did, of what you have done. Our fathers and their fathers, they've passed this good news. They've passed these stories of of deliverance and salvation and redemption down to us. We've heard and we remember. We remember what you've done. Remembering was essential to the life of the people of God. When they entered the promised land, God said, erect these altars, these Ebenezer stones. So that every time you pass by them, you can tell your children, this is what God did. And remembering was built into the the very calendar of the people of God. They celebrated regular feasts of Passover or the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles that was about remembering what God had done for his people. Remembering was important And we often focus on individual remembering. I think that's great. Remembering how God provided for you, for your family, how God protected you, your family. But this is corporate. This isn't just about me. This is about us, the people of God. There's this corporate remembering. And this remembering moves in verses 4 to 7 to corporate expressions of present faith. Present faith is grounded in that remembering of how God had acted. The the psalmist says, you've done this, we remember this, and now we trust. We remember how you've acted and we're trusting you to continue to be our God, our King, to act on our behalf, to bring us the victories. We're not trusting in our swords and in our bows. We're trusting in you, your mighty hand, your arm. That present faith was grounded in remembrance of how God had acted in the past. I see that in operation all the time here in the church, even in our staff meetings. ECC is blessed to have some pastors who have been here a long, long time. Bob, 19 years now. John's like 85, I don't know, something like that. And sometimes we'll be discussing a a budget crunch or or some challenge that the church is facing. And Bob and John, they'll say, yeah, 
We've been there before. We remember. We remember what it was like to walk through that. And we remember how God was faithful. And we trust God will continue to be faithful. We have that history, not just individually, not just as a local body, but as the church. We have this long history of God providing, God caring, God delivering, God saving and redeeming. We draw upon that long history and it grounds our faith in the present and gives us the ability to continue trusting when the situation doesn't seem to foster faith. We can look back and see how the church was in decline. And I'm not talking our church, the church was in decline and, and then God breathed revival. Uh, we can look back and see how the church was got going just through a dark night, but through the dark ages, and yet God was preparing a reformation. We can look back and see how the church was pressed and persecuted, but through that, God was growing the church in remarkable, unbelievable ways. You can push back beyond the history of the early church and into the New Testament and beyond and into the Old Testament. And all these stories that we read of faith and deliverance, those are our stories. We stand in continuity with the people of God through the ages so we can draw on that corporate remembering and use it to strengthen our present faith. Corporate faith. That's the good part of the psalm, the fun part of the psalm. Then you get to verse 8. And there's corporate lament. Okay, this psalm is heavy. I'm going to lighten it up for a moment. My mind works in weird ways sometimes. As I was reading this psalm this morning, what came to mind was the cartoon Bambi Meets Godzilla from 1969. Do you remember this? Opening credits. It's like a minute and a half. You've got to go watch it. Opening credits. Bambi munching on flowers, soft music, everything's peaceful, serene, and good. Then squash. Godzilla's foot comes in and squishes Bambi, and the four legs go squirting out the side. That's the psalm. It's all peaceful. It's all good. Then verse 8, squash. It's a lament. We're, we're given over to our enemies. You've abandoned us. You've rejected us. You've crushed us. There's this voice of, of corporate lament. This isn't just a personal crisis. It's not just sickness, disease. It's not a financial situation that's befalling one family. This is corporate. It's the people of God. It's the body of Christ. It's affecting the whole, the whole nation. We've been crushed, rejected, defeated. Christ promises us in the New Testament that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But at times, it seems like they are. At times, it seems like the church suffers defeats and setbacks, is forced into retreat. It suffers. And this psalm gives voice to that. Corporate lament. Corporate lament that turns into corporate pleading. God, you've done this. You've done this in the past. You've delivered. We're trusting you to deliver now. But it seems like you've rejected us. So awake. Rise up. 
do something on behalf of your people again. The psalm lifts us beyond our own personal victories, our own personal defeats and setbacks. And it lifts our eyes to the body, to the church universal, to the corporate people of God. We become very, we can become very narcissistic in our faith. And it's all about me and my faith, me and my journey. This psalm lifts us out of that. And it says there is a a people of God. And God is working through them, being faithful to them. And you're a part of it. The psalm is very corporate, and it makes it stand out apart. It's the most corporate song of lament that we have. The second thing that, the second unique aspect of this psalm is the, the incredibly high view, maybe even uncomfortably high view of God's sovereignty. It's, it's absolute. The psalm confronts us with the truth that to embrace God's sovereignty in victories is to embrace it in defeats as well. If God is sovereign on the mountaintops, He's sovereign in the valleys. If He's sovereign in times of plenty, He's sovereign also in in times of want and suffering. Uh, The first half of the psalm acknowledges God's sovereignty in all of Israel's victories. It was your hand that did it. You drove out the nations. You crushed them. You brought us in. You established us. So we make you our boast all day long. And then when verse 8 makes that unexpected turn, the psalmist still sees God's hand sovereignly there. You did it. You're sovereign. You crushed us. Uh, let me, let's look at these words. Verse 8. You rejected us and humbled us. You made us retreat. You gave us up. You've scattered us. You've sold us. You made us a reproach. You made us a byword. Verse 17. You crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us in deep darkness. Ouch. The psalmist doesn't shy away from it. Uh, The psalmist doesn't couch it in language of you permitted it or allowed it. it. It's you did it. And the psalmist is inspired and right in saying it. He's not accusing God inappropriately or blaspheming. He's acknowledging God's absolute sovereignty, even in Israel's defeat and suffering. He's giving words or expression to Job's words. In Job 2, when he was suffering, covered in boils, his his wife said, just curse God and die. And Job says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? The prophets, they strike the same note. Isaiah 45, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 
Amos 3.6. Is the trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Uh, this psalm confronts us with uh, the double-sided or double-edged nature of God's sovereignty. Some have called it God's dark providence. Uh, the frowning face of God's providence. And we're tempted, I think, because this is, this is hard. We're tempted to give up on that. To soften it. But I think if we do, we lose the ability to pray as the people prayed at the end of the psalm with confidence. And we want to, to somehow shrink, to shrink the areas of God's sovereignty and, and say things like, God didn't send that, God wasn't sovereign over that. But if He's not sovereign over the events, how can He be sovereign over the consequences and the outcomes if he's not sovereign over the situation how can we be sure that he'll work it to our good when we try to soften this challenging doctrine we end up limiting and shrinking god and in the end i think we lose our confidence and our ability to pray save me with confidence last week i was power washing the siding of our house and i was up on a eight foot not extension ladder well step ladder eight foot step ladder that was very precariously situated two of the legs in a front bush the back two on paving stones that weren't exactly level and i'm on the top second rung leaning one way with my foot extended the other way you know as counterbalance and Jake, my 11-year-old, steadying it for me. If I fell, I had no reasonable, no way to reasonably expect Jake was going to catch me. Right? Jake's a powerhouse. He's strong for his size. He's 11. He's a hoss. But he's not going to catch a 200-pound guy falling from 8 feet. He's strong for his sides, but he's not strong enough. When we limit God's sovereignty, that's what we do. We make him strong for his size. But we've shrunk him down to a comfortable size. And then we say, God, save me. Save us. Fix this. John Piper the pastor has said, let us beware. We spare God the burden of his sovereignty and lose our only hope. Don't try and, and save God from his sovereignty. Don't spare him that burden. Accept it. Embrace it on, on the mountaintops and in the valleys. Because it gives hope and it gives pain and suffering meaning and purpose. It didn't come by accident God sent it. He did it for a good, redemptive, loving purpose. The psalm highlights the, the absolute sovereignty of God. The third thing that makes this psalm uncomfortable and unique 
is the strong claim to innocence. This isn't a, a penitential psalm. In the penitential psalms, the psalmist is suffering disease or enemies attacking or, or whatever the calamity is. And he acknowledges it's because of my sin I've offended. I've sinned against you and you alone, O Lord, and I repent. This isn't a penitential psalm. The people say, we're innocent. We're faithful and yet defeated. There's a dissonance there in our minds, isn't it? Faithful and defeated. It makes the psalm somewhat bewildering. That's what the psalmist is experiencing. Bewilderment. Why? We haven't forsaken you. We haven't broken covenant. We've maintained faith. We're trusting you. Our feet haven't walked from the path. Our hearts haven't departed from you. And yet still, you've given us up. Now, the psalmist isn't here claiming sinlessness, but righteousness. Not claiming sinlessness. The covenant didn't, frankly, require sinlessness. There was provisions in the covenant that God had made with Israel to cover sin. When you sin, here's how you confess. Here's how you make atonement. Not claiming sinlessness, but faithfulness. And it makes the psalm hard. Some have tried to get around this kind of difficulty by saying, well, this is probably a pharisaical kind of claim to innocence. You know, we're doing all the little things right, God. We're tithing our mint and our cumin. But really, they weren't. Really, their hearts were far from God. That's one way to get around it, but it doesn't jive with the text or how the passage is used in the New Testament. There's no indication that their, their claim to innocence is rejected by God. And Paul draws upon this chapter in the New Testament to explain why he, an apostle of Christ, is suffering for doing good. All day long, we face death. Not because we're rebelling, not because we're sinning, but because we're faithful. It's not for punishment that God has given over Israel to defeat. It's not because of their sin or rejection of Him. So why? Why did He do it? Well, no answer is given in this psalm. It's like Job. It really is, corporately. Job, we're told in the book of Job, was righteous, innocent, and yet suffered tremendously. It's like Joseph, sold by his brothers, into slavery, ends up in prison, forgotten in prison, because he was sinful? No. He was innocent. He was righteous. The psalm just reminds us that bad things befall the people of God, individually and sometimes corporately. Uh, the external situation of the, the people of God, of the church, is not always an indication of the internal condition of the people of God or the church. 
Let, let me say that again. I think to me that was one of the most important truths that I took personally from this passage this week. The external condition of the people of God is not always an indication of the internal condition of the people of God. It's just not. Put yourself in the shoes of a Roman Christian, say the year 420 A.D. The church is flourishing. The church is doing good things. It's spreading the gospel. It's prospering. And then the barbarians come to the city gates. And the city falls. And you lose your home. It's burned. Your wealth plundered. Your property destroyed. And you think, why? What did we as your people, the church, do to deserve this? And to make it worse, people who are Romans are now pointing the finger at you and saying, it's your fault. You think, why? Why, God? Was it because of our sin that you brought judgment? And the answer very well could come back, no. It was just a part of my plan. Put yourself in the shoes of an Iraqi Christian who for decades has lived in tense but peaceful coexistence in their community. And then things change. And the pastor of your church is kidnapped and summarily executed. You think, why? Was it because we've wandered away from your path, God? And the answer could very well come back, no. It's part of my sovereign plan. Or our church in India who just had their church building burnt. Why, God? Did we forsake you? No. It's a part of my inscrutable plan for the ages. Well, what about us here in the U.S.? We have to be very careful, I think, not to fall into the same pattern as Job's friends. Job's friends saw suffering and said, sin. It's got to be. And I think we fall into that pattern ourselves. Earlier, or this year, or maybe it was late last year, a new Pew Research study was released. And it showed that, I think for the first time, by percentage, Christianity was declining in the U.S. And so many people were so quick to say it's because the church hasn't been faithful to their mission or to their God. Or because the church hasn't been holy enough or bold enough or loving enough. Or because the church has been too judgmental. And maybe so. But maybe not. Maybe it's just a part of God's sovereign plan. I'm not saying the church is perfect. The church should always be examining itself. Reformed and always, and always reforming is a wonderful motto for the church. But sometimes, God chooses to allow the world to vent its rage against His bride. Not for judgment's sake. Sometimes, God chooses to bring down empires, to allow societies to decay. And sometimes his church suffers as it happens. Why? 
don't know. We do get a clue, I think, in this psalm. Small clue. In verse 22, the psalmist says, Yet for your sake we face death all day long. One commentator, Derek Kidner, picked up and said that we need to remember Christians are enlisted in war. That's what being a Christian means. And we are to be prepared to endure suffering, to cope with frustrations, to face with calmness periods of blessing and barrenness, advance and retreat, which may bear no relation to our spiritual state. God's people are caught up in a war that is more than local, and suffering may not be punishment but a battle scar, the price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. Battle scars. But battle scars with purpose. I was preparing ahead uh, for an ACG and reading about the long-dead theologian Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr lived in the early 2nd century came to faith in Christ after a conversation with an old man by the sea. But before that conversation, God had been preparing the ground in his heart. He had seen and been troubled by and convicted by the courage, the boldness, the conviction of Christians who he saw tortured and murdered. And it stirred him. He didn't know the message of the gospel yet, but it stirred him to see their battle scars, to see how they suffered with calmness and grace. He became a convert partly because of that and wrote some of the most important apologetic work in the early church. God used the battle scar in ways that those Christians who are suffering in Colosseums and around pyres didn't understand, but God used their battle scars to further His kingdom. It wasn't because of judgment, but because of God's eternal purposes. That's hard. It is. The psalm is hard. God's high sovereignty, the fact that we suffer innocently sometimes, it's difficult. It's a dark psalm. But darkness, it, it doesn't have the final word. Not in this psalm. Literally, the last word of the psalm shines a bright light. Literally, the last word of the psalm is hesed. Sometimes it's translated God's steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated his enduring love or his loving kindness. The last word of the psalm is where dawn breaks, I think, into this night. And it's a word that in, in retrospect shines light through the whole psalm. The beginning illustration, Caleb in the hospital bed. I think that's an important parallel. He was there and I was allowing him to go through that because of my love for him. He needed what those nurses were doing to him. He didn't understand it because there was a chasm between his understanding and mine as a parent. 
that chasm is far deeper, far wider when it comes to our understanding and God's. What does not feel like love now, in retrospect, we see that was God's hand of love for his people. I don't hold the vaccinations my parents gave me or the discipline they administered or the fact that they made me sit and do my homework. I don't hold them that stuff against them. Now, in retrospect, I understand it was love. At the time, didn't seem it. At the time, the psalmist, he's feeling abandoned. The people are feeling abandoned. But they cling to God's steadfast love. They were suffering not because God was powerless. He was almighty in it. And they were suffering not because of their sin. They were innocent. They were suffering somehow, for some reason, because of God's loving kindness upon them. That's a mystery. But what's an even deeper mystery is that God would put himself in that place where he would feel, through Christ, that sense of abandonment, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feel cut off, feel crushed, feel like the sheep led to the slaughter, rejected so that we could be accepted. When the situation of life and the situation the church finds itself in thrusts doubt upon us that we're loved, the cross dispels all those doubts. We remember his loving kindness. That because he was rejected, we are truly accepted. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you. We, we praise you that you are a God whose ways are far above our ways, who is far wiser than we are. We, we throw ourselves upon your wisdom, upon your, your sovereign plan. We know it's good. We know you will work things to our good and to the good of your people throughout the world, throughout the ages. We pray that in times of, of suffering and distress, we, your people, would be able to turn to you, remembering your faithfulness, trusting always your goodness and your loving kindness towards us. Thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.